0: It's a privilege to welcome to our series this morning Michael Gutman OBE, Founder and Chief Executive Officer of Assembly Funds Management and one of Australia's most experienced property specialists. Michael, welcome to the program, great having you on. I want to open our discussion with your career. You've had an extraordinary career in real estate and capital markets for over four decades now. Based on your experiences, what are the fundamentals required to be successful in property do you think?
1: Maybe just before we get on to that, can I just congratulate you for your podcast series? Um, Obviously watched it over the last few years, and it's been a fantastic uh, source of knowledge for me and many others in the industry, particularly during lockdown. So um, really well done to you and and great to finally sit down. Thank you very much. You don't have to remind me that question. I think I remember it. You want me to summarise four decades in uh, about that much time? You know, uh, I think uh, the successful investment and development over a long period of time. Just takes me back a little bit to uh, discussions with David Lowy very early on, who hired me in my Westfield days 25 years ago and really had the habit of keeping things very simple. It was, you know, and if you don't like these catchphrases or not, but, um, you know, for investment, um, buy low, sell high, and for development, God is in the detail. So, um, you know, people talk about all sorts of, you know, sort of simple, Location, 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 etc. Just in terms of the, um, in terms of that, God is in the detail. Um, way back when I was uh, uh, doing my architecture, I was sort of interning at Harry Seidler, Harry Seidler's office. So we might get onto that down the track. But the uh, one of the projects was the MLC Centre, which is, you know, probably one of Sydney's tallest buildings, and. Uh, back in the days in, in, the, sort of in, the, in the early 80s and uh, you just think about the complexities of development and uh, just one of the anecdotes that probably a lot of people wouldn't be aware of but you know the constrained site of the MLC centre and to actually build the building was actually had to be built internally and all the concrete had to be brought up from downstairs and up through the core. So what they actually did was they actually got a park out, I think it was out in Blacktown, and they mapped out the whole route for the concrete trucks that would come in off King Street, go underground, um, drop off the concrete and then come up on the little Castlereagh Street layover. Um, they planned it meticulously and uh, they went out there to the park and they put those little cones out and guides and what have you, brought the truck in, drove it through up and down, got it all right. and the you know, basically ready for the first day. So they actually then built the whole underground, built the basement, first concrete truck arrives, coming up King Street, makes its left turn down, goes down the ramp, delivers its concrete, on the way up, bang. Actually, the detail of, you know, a concrete truck without its concrete is actually that much higher.
0: That's extraordinary. I want to ask you about the, the current environment. As you know, we're living in one of the most uncertain geopolitical and economic environments at the moment. What's, what's your perspective on the volatility in markets at the moment? And, and are you still finding suitable investment opportunities? People talk about the three I's, you know, inflation,
1: invasion and uh, infection. Probably not necessarily in that order. But uh, look, it's been an incredibly complex time, as, as we all know, that we're living through. From the perspective of the uh, infection from the pandemic era and what we've all been through in terms of COVID and where we are, um, look, hopefully things are getting back to normal. Um, and you know, again, that's a much broader subject. From the invasion side, um, the terrible um, you know, you know, toll that's being taken from the war in Ukraine and the ramifications that's having across the supply chain energy prices and obviously the personal tragedy. And then you know on the inflation side, um, obviously we've just begin begun to see in Australia the rate rise cycle commence. Uh, We've seen it overseas. Um, So yeah the setup is is very complex. Um, You know there are challenges on the China front, there are, you know, many issues around the the climate change issues. I suppose we can talk about that a little bit more as well. Um, So yes it is a very complex backdrop. But uh, in terms of how we manage, I think the, the answer really is for us uh, in our business is really having the flexibility to move um, into where the opportunities are. And we really do that by being a multi-sector business and be able to move across different asset classes. Um, we, have, we work through different time frames, so we're able to play the market short, medium and longer term. And so, uh, you
0: know, this gives us a lot of
1: flexibility.
0: Before we move on, when reflecting on the past say five to ten years, what are the major trends that have dominated commercial real estate markets both domestically and globally and what do you anticipate the core themes may, may be over say the next five to ten years? Look, Looking back um, over that period, and
1: maybe slightly longer than the five to ten years, because we have talked about the four decades that I've been in this business, but I would really have to say the biggest trend has really been the digital revolution, the whole digitization of, of information and, and, and knowledge and process. You know, the iPhone, the first iPhone, uh, had really only came out in um, early 2000s. You know, I remember my first iMac, I think, when I kicked off in, in the sort of in the 80s. Um, I was doing my own spreadsheets, reports and email, and I was a pretty early adopter on all of that. But I mean even if you think just for the property world, the, the Microsoft Excel spreadsheet only came out in the 80s and it's been the backbone of everything that we do in this industry and so many other industries. Um, but I think more broadly in terms of what the digital uh, revolution has done to our business has been phenomenal. In terms of the way that it's progressively disrupted so many parts of our lives, in terms of how we live, how we work, how we consume, reflecting back on my Westfield uh, era, which I, I suppose we'll chat about a little bit, um, significant impact on on the the physical bricks and mortar retail, uh, significant impacts on um, on the way we live in our homes, and you know the technologies of streaming and delivery and. Um, you know, home exercise and all these type of things. So I think I probably have to say looking back, the biggest thing really in my lifetime, lifetime has been the digital revolution. And I suppose the, uh, the power of what, what this thing can now do, which is just quite phenomenal. I mean, the size of that and the power that it has has completely transformed our lives. I think probably looking forward, I'm sure there's a way to go in all of that uh, digital world. Um, but primarily, I'd say looking forward, the really big, the really big things is this whole decarbonisation, um, the whole climate change issues. And, you know, digital's really affected our, our world and our physical and our real estate world. Um, there's no doubt that the whole decarbonisation will have huge impacts as well. And, and I guess we're seeing it probably what we saw in retail and what the digitisation did to retail. You know we're seeing that in the office world in terms of the kinds of buildings that that people want to work in can work in where owners want to be where tenants want to be um and the whole creation and construction of those so i think probably you know they they stand out to me as the really big ones of course you know there's there's the whole issues around pandemics and how we manage that going forward um, There are the social issues that we're seeing coming through the corporate world in terms of the the sort of the gender balance and, and, and the social issues that are so important as well. But I think probably those those really that digitization and decarbonisation are the really big ones.
0: I thought we'd now move into Assembly Funds Management, the business you founded some three years ago that now has an existing portfolio of some $325 million of assets under management. Take me through your thought process in launching this business at the time and where you saw the opportunity to utilise your expertise and skill set was.
1: When the Westfield world sort of ended for me in a sense with the transaction in 2018, I sort of was really coming off a huge high in terms of a corporate career and I wasn't really quite ready to stop working. Um, I wasn't ready to to literally hang up my boots and say, that's it for me. Um, I'm not a great golfer or a great uh, bridge player. And so it was kind of like really, where can I make a contribution? Um, I had some of my own wealth to invest and and I wanted to invest that where I had knowledge and capability and I thought that, you know, I could do that alongside others. So I think uh, it was a, a fairly natural you know, thought process to, to continue down the property path um, and, uh, and, you know, bring the, I suppose, four decades of experience that I had into that process.
0: As I understand it, the venture is a collaboration between yourself, the Lowy Family Group and Alcyon Group. I'd be interested to get an understanding of why you partnered with those two firms in particular and, and what their expertise and experience has brought to the table.
1: I mean, maybe just, you mentioned the word partnership um, I guess I've sort of been fortunate to, um, through my career, in with, with great mentors and in true, in true partnerships. And I've, I've, I've really always seen the value, the power of that, great partnerships and great teams. Um, I saw that um, at Mervac in my time with Henry Pollack and Bob Hamilton, um, hugely successful partnerships, working with the founders. Um, I saw that, obviously, at, at Westfield you know, the partnership that began with Frank Lowy and John Saunders um, and moved through a partnership, you know, with his family, with the senior executive team, you know, with all the stakeholders uh, and uh, that really has always resonated with me. So, in terms of getting going in a business in my 60s, I uh, really saw the value of partnership and it was really logical for me to then work with people that I had a long connection with and a long trust who were obviously keen to continue to support me, and that is in the Lowy family and LFG, who are cornerstone investors in the business uh, and in the fund. And, uh, and, and also, um, you know, Alcyon Group. I mean, another successful partnership with uh, Phil Green, Trevor Lowenson, and, and Morris Simons.
0: So as you know, there's been a significant push into real estate funds management from both the private and listed sectors. What differentiates Assembly's investment mandate to those of other groups? And has the increasingly competitive market led to greater difficulty at all in finding suitable investments?
1: Look, firstly, I would say we did make a deliberate decision three years ago to get into the funds management business as a kind of an entry point so you know we obviously feel pretty comfortable with that and I suppose the competition is there and and we deal with that from how we manage day to day um, really we have a lot of flexibility in our mandate and we think that was a really important decision to make from the perspective of uh, where we can operate across sectors being you know multi-sector opportunity um, different strategies in terms of whether it's core plus value-add or debt and different types of debt um, and also um, you know th- and and also thinking about playing markets different markets short medium or long term and maybe we can talk a little bit more about that as well particularly the residential market so and I think I think the other really big decision we made which I think has been really critical to what we've been able to do to date and for the business going forward is to have this coverage of of the multi-sectors Um, with a relatively small team is, I suppose, I look at us akin to really we're real estate private equity. You know, I had had a thousand people sort of in the team in Westfield. We're not there today, you know, we focus really very much on the strategy and where the equity is going, where the investment is, but we want to work very much with capable people on the ground who are really expert in their field and doing the job. So, you know, people like Cadence on the large format retail and the industrial people like Harrington on the childcare, uh, NASHCAP on the residential, um, and now very much our new partners Fortus. where I'm not sure if you're aware, we won the preferred bidder status in Double Bay to redevelop the cross street car park into a major mixed use uh, scheme together with Fortus. So, so I think that strategy um, is very important for us uh, and in terms of the ability to, to get access to product and to work across multiple strategies.
0: And given your sector agnostic, what are the fundamentals, the investment fundamentals that you analyse prior to pursuing projects, be it childcare, healthcare, residential, retail? You know, in terms of the disciplines that we bring to bear on,
1: I mean, regardless of the sectors, we have a certain discipline in terms of what we go to. I mean, opportunities can come to us. I mean, we hear this term off-market a lot today. We generally try to find things that are genuinely off-market. Um, but in terms, of, in terms of the things that come to us through these various channels, through our own transaction team led by Tim Mura, opportunities come from the LFG channel, from the Alcyon channel, from, you know, in terms of from our own team. But however they come in, and there's a huge filter in terms of, you know, there's 20 or 30 that merge down to one, but there's a really disciplined process in there. Uh, which has got to get taken through all the steps that you would imagine. And then, you know, we we have a really very, very um, rigid IC process. Our IC is basically Phil Green, myself and Simon Shakechef, who effectively have to be comfortable with any of these opportunities, heavily consulting with with our partners um, before, you know, they get formally um, put forward.
0: And which sectors are offering the most appeal or which sectors are you avoiding, actively avoiding at the moment, if any? Well, if,
1: if if you just look at the world, I mean, you know, the last few years since we got going, interestingly, we opened the door, you know, in September 2019. COVID came along in February 20. We had three deals ready to go. We had to basically put a hold on, on, on all of them um, and kind of reassess. I don't think too many people would have predicted the fact that we were going to have this really sharp V. I remember probably back in those days, everyone was talking, is it W, is it, is it L, is it U? You know, in the end, we had this massive V and we was kind of like, hold on to your seats and, and off we were running again. Um, so um, I think that, uh, you know, where we, what we did historically was, you know, being able to be flexible across the sectors I mean, I had just come off the back of being involved in the sale of probably one of the greatest retail portfolios in the world. And with so much change going on in that sector, it was kind of like, let's just take a breather on that before we start and jump back into retail. From the office perspective, even pre-COVID, it wasn't really all that robust. Uh, and obviously, COVID didn't help that. Um, and I think we're still trying to figure out exactly where office sits. I talked earlier about the whole climate change issue on that as well, and where will that end up in terms of the prime, secondary, and, and all of those values. So I guess what we did is we, with all the tailwinds that were in residential, thinking back a couple of years ago, we decided to play residential on a more short-term strategy through um, you know, more senior debt um, with you know very good sensible LVRs, Uh, the downsizer market, heavily pre-sold and uh, and sort of townhouse development which was very much a product of people actually didn't want to buy apartments at the time, they wanted a bit more space for their own home. So we really focused on that and probably a little bit of shop top housing um, which was a space that we liked as well because the sort of the ground floor retail, local, that was all pretty solid as well. So they're the kinds of things that we initially focused on. And, uh, but, but playing it short term, most of those are now coming to a conclusion and we'll be thinking about where we go on the residential front given what's going on in the world in terms of, you know, uh, supply chain, costs, market, etc. But I guess where we also liked very much, and we're not, we weren't Robinson Crusoe on this, was the whole logistics space. Um, and, but the way we decided to play that was we looked at a number of developments. Um, But we just couldn't see the fact that we were being paid for the development risk in terms of creating industrial or logistic space. So we kind of migrated towards buying existing buildings with value-add opportunities, low site cover in urban infill style locations. And I guess what we're really seeing now is, is that for the first time in many, many years, that real significant increase in industrial rents is starting to come through. So we saw that opportunity there to actually buy existing buildings where you're not taking development risk, planning risk, construction risk, leasing risk, and, uh, and, and so that, that was kind of another strategy we migrated to.
0: I want to get your gauge on the inaugural fund, ADPF1, which I believe is targeting a 10 to 12% net IRR for investors. How have you observed the performance of this fund to date and what do you see are the likely investments the business will make in the near term? When we um,
1: you know, designed the first product, ADPF1, um, as i mentioned, a diversified product, uh, we set a target return of 10 to 12%. That was really predicated on, in order to achieve that, it was really a mixture of um, these kind of style of assets that i mentioned core plus value add and debt, roughly about a third um, of those in the fund, a third each, um, and that they would then in their own way sort of blend out at kind of a 13 to 15 style gross return. So the 13 to 15 gross, if we achieve that, drops down to a 10 to 12 net. Um, Now at the moment the fund's running at about a 16% style return. So we're slightly out achieving on the gross side um, and that's a function of the the sort of the 12 deals that we've done to date. The other thing to mention probably also is we pay a 5% distribution. As well, and we've just paid our first distribution a little bit earlier than stabilizations come a little bit earlier than expected.
0: Let's explore some of the transactions that have been executed thus far. And you did mention Cadence Property earlier, as I understand it. You've done, I think, four or five deals with them. Most recently, a joint venture to acquire two industrial warehouses in Melbourne. And then there was also a shopping centre in Sunshine North and a circa $39 million deal. Walk me through the partnership with Cadence or or Harrington. What do you look for in in groups that you're doing JVs or partnerships with?
1: Yeah, well, I I did touch on the partnership side a little bit. Um, in, in the case of Cadence uh, and in the case of Sunshine, which was our first deal, that was one of those back in the early, um, sort of right at the beginning of COVID. And that was a deal that Tim uh, Mira from our transaction team brought forward. And, you know, the, the attraction there was, it was a large piece of land, six hectares of land, adjacent to a lot of public transport, transport infrastructure, the Albion and Sunshine, railway stations in, in northwestern or western Melbourne and you know what was really attractive there was that we were able to um, buy that on about a five percent yield at a land rate of about six hundred fifty dollars a metre for the six hectares and we were able to pretty quickly take that five percent up to about seven percent yield pre-leverage and uh, stabilise the property, stabilise the leasing through a fairly difficult um, COVID period, where we had actually negotiated a a rent guarantee from the vendor. And uh, look, we really see significant upside in the land value. Um, The large format retail space, I mean, it's a Harvey Norman, it's homewares, those type of things. um, That's obviously had huge tailwinds. So look, we like that very, very much from the perspective of land rich, it has town centre approval for a major redevelopment uh, when, when we decide the time's right. It's performing strongly in terms of its income. Obviously the relationship with Cadence was key to that and that was really the beginning of the relationship. Um, the Victorian government soon afterwards announced a $12 billion infrastructure improvement that will be focused around the Sunshine and Albion stations. That will be the stopping point off from a Melbourne to Tullamarine rail link and also a super sort of a regional location of all the Western trains coming in from Bendigo, Ballarat and Geelong. So what we really liked about it was it's powerful infrastructure, powerful location, holding yield, future development potential. I mean, it basically ticked every box that the fund would like to achieve. And sorry, we didn't buy a lot more of them. In terms of the relationship, you know, that's really, I mean, business is relationships, Um, getting to know the Cadence people, through that transaction. Um, obviously, um, you know, highly capable, great understanding of the Melbourne market. I mentioned, I touched on the whole industrial strategy and the thought process there really evolved into, I think we've now done about $140 million of transactions with them in six deals. Um, starting off with Sunshine, we then bought some more land adjacent, adjacent to Sunshine, another two hectares of land, uh, which we thought had similar characteristics. That's now being leased and has some good holding income on it uh, and is there for the kind of value-add story. And then, you know, we really moved into this whole industrial urban infill logistics play in Victoria, in suburbs like Southeast Andenong um, and the inner north in Preston, where we've bought buildings, as I described, you know, low site cover ability, you know, holding income, ability to subdivide, and uh, you know and, and the opportunity in the near term to get access for rental uplift
0: AFM also recently purchased a portfolio of six childcare assets across Sydney in a speculated forty three million dollar deal where, where does the childcare, uh, where do these childcare assets fit within the portfolio? are they a long-term defensive play with capital growth or are they a stability play? Just maybe just to add to the earlier question and combine it with
1: this one but you know, very much in terms of our process, we like to really start with some macro themes uh, in terms of, you know, do we feel comfortable about, you know, the sector and where it's at. And we've talked about some of those larger themes, but we look at those really on a, I suppose, a red light, green light, amber light style. And we look at them across, you know, by sector, by geography, by, by term, then by individual location, etc. So if you look at a childcare, for example, we like very much the alternative space. And again, I don't think we're alone in that, but we've seen very much that I suppose global interest in Australia um, and and elsewhere has very much uh, on the basis that, you know, some have been unsure about retail and office. And there's this been huge sort of, you know, weight of money coming and starting to look at some of these more alternative style investments. I think we were quite early in that. Uh, where we got into residential um, you know obviously we you know there, there was a head of steam in industrial but very much we've looked at um, pubs service stations childcare you know logistics self storage senior living so very open to look at these alternative areas as long as they mesh with the kind of macro thematic that we believe in uh, and we see support for so sorry to <laughs> burden you with all of that but Coming back to childcare, I mean, again, the the overall story we liked, we see more and more the bipartisan approach uh, and government support for childcare. We were able to witness it through COVID and see how important it was for the community, how how the operators were supported, how the customers were supported. On that particular deal, we bought it extremely well. Um, We partnered, obviously, with Harrington, another group that we respect greatly, um, who found that opportunity, five existing childcares and one... As a forward sale. We liked the northwest of Sydney because we were already very involved in the residential space, in first mortgage lending, and construction of townhouses, and we kind of saw the power of it. We knew that market quite well. So that's really where the childcare was focused. It was part opportunistic and part that we fundamentally liked, liked that space. We feel very good about the, the investment, you know, that that now sits in the fund.
0: On the alternatives piece, do you see any potential in getting involved in, say, data centres or build-to-rent at all?
1: We've got a very open mind. Um, I suppose in terms of data centres, look, they're incredibly tightly held. Um, but in my opening comments about digitisation, they're the absolute epitome of what's going on and, and all the photos we all take of our dogs and our you know grandchildren and, and, and the meals we're eating in restaurants, they're filling them up. around the world we have looked at that market we haven't found anything that that was suitable I guess the issue for us we're very very focused on our returns in terms of delivering our 10 to 12 that's our mantra that means 13 to 15 gross out of the deal blended and so the ability to actually find very very competitive product like that sometimes there's going to be a mismatch it doesn't mean it's the wrong investment it just means it's not if we keep disciplined, it's not right for the fund So uh, in terms of BTR, probably similar issue. Till now, I suppose, we've looked at BTR as, you know, with all the tailwinds on helping people own homes with the, you know, the money supply, the low rates, the tight market, everything else. I mean, people have been able to afford, readily afford their own homes generally If that gets a little bit harder, what does that do to the Build to Rent side? So I think we need to look at that, and it's also a function of where does it sit in our return type of targets.
0: Before we move on, AFM has now completed three oversubscribed raisings raisings with its fourth and final raise underway. What's what's next in the pipeline as the business expands? How how big do you want to make this business? You know, look, our
1: absolute focus is Fund One. Um, We're 70% drawn. Uh, we, are, um, we have made thirteen investments and realized one to date we 're in our final fundraise to wrap up the fundraising for the fund uh, we 're obviously giving a lot of thought to where to next you know there 's a debate around a fund series which is similar to fund one there 's a debate around where we go next in terms of next product. I think you know thinking back three years ago, we designed a product that was really suitable desirable for high net worth and ultra high net worth investors the style of return the distribution the flexible mandate at the moment we're giving a lot of thought to where to next but the real priority is you know get um, the first fund raised drawn um, and invested
0: I want to now explore your background. As I understand it, you grew up in Sydney and attended Moriah College before enrolling in a Bachelor of Architecture degree at the University of Technology, Sydney, graduating in 1976. Talk to us about your upbringing and and how your interest in architecture was established.
1: Look, I grew up in a um, immigrant family. My parents were Holocaust survivors. And I, uh, uh, you know, but having said all of that, I grew up in a very warm and you know, happy home. In terms of uh, studies, I think probably, you know, you were probably aware that uh, the mindset of a lot of those survivors for their kids was get a great education, generally in medicine or dentistry. But that wasn't for me. Um, I used to, you know, through my um, school years and what have you, always had part-time jobs and all of that. And. I used to love working on building sites, labouring, I always liked buildings and creating things, even assembling an assembly property fund. And uh, you know, I, I suppose the, the, the gravitation to architecture was that it, it sounded interesting to me, it felt interesting. Um, it was really a great undergraduate education. Uh, if you think about architecture, studying you know, art history and you know, generally history, learning about the environment, learning about buildings, Um, making things, doing things, going on field trips. It was pretty fascinating um, as as an undergraduate course and I think a great general education and, you know, I think if you're going to come into real estate, you're going to come in a few different routes. I think architecture is one way, probably not the kind of mainstream way. Um, The whole financial side I really had to pick up through my career
0: which you certainly did, you, you obviously studied a master's degree in architecture at the University of New South Wales and then learned some of those financial skills joining MIRVAC in 1980 and, and becoming a development executive. Reflecting on this period, what, what, what sort of projects were you working on at Murvac and, and what were the first couple of years like there?
1: So interestingly what I did was I did my architecture part time for the first few years as you mentioned at the tech. And during that period of time, I worked in architectural offices as an intern. I might have mentioned earlier that I worked at Harry Seidler's. I worked at Donald Crone, who actually was building Centrepoint Tower, which then sat on top of Westfield, Sydney for so many, many years later. Um, in Harry Seidler's office, I sat there. Um, uh, that was post the 74 downturn, which I still remember. And, uh, you know, probably not many people around have seen downturns like that, that we sort of saw in the 70s and then in the in, in the late 80s, early 90s. At that time in Harry Seidler's office, it was Harry Seidler, one other partner, and me buying lunch and printing drawings. And, uh, and the office was empty. He just, I think he was in Glen Street in Nilsons And there was a whole floor of empty workstations. And that really brought home the cycles to me, very, very much. And, uh, and then when I uh, fortunately had that experience in architecture, Obviously, I went to New South Wales Uni for the balance of my course. I wanted that full time experience at uni and also figured out I could save a year by missing the practical year in year four because I'd already done three years of it. That was helpful too. So, I guess finishing all of that off, I sort of at that point in time decided, you know, am I really, is architecture really for me? I don't know if you've seen Hamilton, but there is that song, Be in the Room Where It Happens. Um, which always resonated with me, and I just felt the, like the architects, not necessarily in terms of control of the project, control of a lot of the decisions. And I felt that I wanted to be more on that side of it than than, than, than otherwise. So I kind of, at the end of my studies, having had the practical experience in a bunch of offices and seen how architecture worked, decided I <coughs> probably wasn't going to be the best architect in the world. I wasn't bad, but. I thought that I really wanted to then go and learn about um, property development.
0: And following five years with Mervac, you then joined Ellison Investments as a development manager for five years, as well as three years spent in the same role, but with Lendlease. What are some of the key learnings or lessons you took away from these experiences? And what sort of exposure did you have to the various asset classes during that time?
1: Look, I think that was a really important period for my life. Um, And, you know, at at, uh, Mervac, I mean, I was fortunate to work, as I mentioned earlier, with the founders during that period, 80 to 85, when Mervac was on incredible roll. I mean, they were building, you know, uh, King Copeland and Elizabeth Bay and Overthorpe in Double Bay. And they were really doing phenomenal um, residential developments that starting to think about where to next. But they really understood the market. And again, just talking about cycles. I mean, I do remember, slightly off topic here, but I do remember the York apartments that's really one of their excellent projects today. There was a point when they were pre-selling those apartments, and I was sort of attending and you know assisting around through that process. And basically, people were handing over checks uh, for a 10% deposit, and they actually weren't even putting a number in. So they're giving the salesman the check because the prices were being put up um, every hour. Um, so just just something to just something to recognise from that period back in the 80s, and just to be a little bit sober about I suppose where we are today. But at that time in Mervac, that five years was really very, very, very much about the residential market. Um, the next uh, period of time at, at Ellison Investments was really a period around the commercial market in North Sydney, the industrial, industrial market out west, and the industrial market in um, North Ryde, etc. That was a group that was very early on in the industrial market, <coughs> and, uh, and obviously we've seen where that's gone today, even people like. Um, Jeff Ford and Ford Land that have stayed with that, we were doing stuff together in those days and that's proven to be an incredible space to be in.
0: So in September 1993 you joined Westfield, a business with whom you then spent the next 25 years of your career with, rising to Global President and Chief Operating Officer. Firstly, talk me through how your involvement in, in Westfield came about.
1: Well, interestingly, um, a mutual friend um, of mine and David Lowy's approached me and uh, we got together and had a chat. Um, And then I was obviously taken through all the various steps of interviews. Um, Obviously met, you know, David and Stephen and and then ultimately Frank. Funny story was a little bit flippant as a a young person. I probably wouldn't have done it today. But um, when I ultimately um, had the audience with Frank, he put me through my paces and everything else and he said, have you you got any questions for me? Um, And I said, well, you know, I had heard potentially or what I was concerned about is, was there a glass ceiling here, given that the sort of the family role in the business? Um, And he quickly snapped back to me and he said, "Um, there's no glass ceiling, but the chairman's role's taken, right? So (laughs) that was was it. But I've got to say, it was the, the most wonderful opportunity for me Um, obviously the absolute highlight of my professional career Um, and uh, yeah and then I I, I got the job and I got going Um, I suppose interestingly for you know Millennials and younger people and what have you I mean if you look at my career in those sort of you know sort of generally five-year chunks and then somewhere for 25 years clearly I found a place that was you know a a place that I could really have an impact um, like-minded people and a phenomenal um, trajectory in terms of opportunities to work on and really there was absolutely no limit to what could be personally achieved in the business and so yeah it was, it was obviously a, a wonderful wonderful period.
0: And take me through some of the projects that you worked on over that time. So I
1: came into the business I went take 25 years to tell you this, but really worked through really initially in Australia probably for about half my career and the other half was overseas. In the first half I guess I started off down in Victoria, I was really development executive in Victoria was my starting role in retail and uh, obviously and I guess one of the first things that I did and that this was really a period when David Lowy was after 25 years in the business himself very much migrating towards being um, running the family investment business which has gone on to be incredibly uh, successful. But at that time we had a really brief handover between um, David and Stephen Lowy who we really was who I reported to for the, next, for the balance of my time in the business. And the first deal we did very quickly was buying the fa- <coughs> sorry buying the Fountain Gate Shopping Centre in Melbourne from the TAC. So that was a really great start. Uh, proper, it was a property that had huge amount of potential in the South East Growth Corridor um, and it's been a you know really one it is now one of the major um, assets in, in in that now centre portfolio. So I really progressed from a development executive in Victoria on projects like Southland, Doncaster, Airport West, Fountain Gate. I then picked up South Australian side of things with Marion, and Tea Tree Plaza and Arndale um, and then uh, Perth. Carousel, Morley, um, Inaloo, those type of buildings. Um, And then as I started to then progress across in terms of divisions, uh, originally in development, but I picked up design and construction, and then ultimately um, picked up the half of the business together with a gentleman by the name of Bob Jordan. We were Joint Chief Operating Officers of the Australia New Zealand business. I also picked up New Zealand responsibilities. And then after that, basically, um, as the business expanded overseas, um, there was the opportunity to take on the Chief Operating Officer role in the UK. Um, it was very early on in the UK uh, development, uh, or the UK establishment of the business. Um, I suppose the transformational transaction we did was buying the Chelsfield portfolio, um, which really to us meant moving from some of the more um, lesser regional style buildings into a really major London game. And that was like a huge change, game changer for the business, for myself, for Um, for Westfield. um, It was just a phenomenal opportunity to bring the Westfield brand to London um, on some incredibly major, complicated, exciting projects um, of really what became known as Westfield London and Westfield Stratford City um, over a, uh, you know, sort of the the balance of my time in in the business.
0: And there was also expansion into the US as I understand it as well. What what was the, the fundamentals behind not just being an Australian business but but the family and yourself and others in the business wanting to expand into Europe and and the US?
1: If you look at the trajectory of Westfield, obviously Frank Lowy, John Saunders started back in 1960, Um, They I suppose they did a phenomenal job covering the Australian market, Um, where do you go after that? And obviously they're incredibly ambitious um, and successful people. Um, there was, both a limit of what you could do in the Australian market, and they'd pretty well done it. Um, so I think probably 25, 30 years ago, they identified the US and got going um, with building a business there. US was first in terms of the expansion. Obviously, there was New Zealand, um, but then you know UK and Europe followed. Um, so that was really in the early 2000s, and. So it was an incredibly formative opportunity to get into Europe. I mean, the issues with Australia were you had a certain supply of floor space in Australia in terms of sort of probably a fairly healthy ratio. You had a US ratio that was a lot higher because planning controls were lesser and a lot more stuff got built. And I think the market's suggesting a lot of that now, particularly post-Amazon style issues, post-COVID style issues, a lot of those lesser buildings um, or the overdevelopment is being heavily challenged. You know, from, from my perspective, having had the responsibility for the UK, and then once um, I suppose we had the whole demerger of Westfield and Centre Group, um, I then uh, was given the responsibility for the Chief Operating Officer role and President of the entire Westfield operations, which included the US. So at that point in time, you know we had projects like Century City, Valley Fair, and of course World Trade Center. Um, and uh, and really then I suppose coming to terms with the U.S. business, its opportunities and its challenges um, for the remaining period until mid-2018 when the business was sold.
0: And are the principles of developing retail property in Australia the same as they are in the U.K. and the U.S.? Do you still follow the same underlying guidelines or is it totally different? The Australian
1: mall industry or retail industry or shopping centre industry, whatever you call it, had some real challenges to deal with early on that made it very innovative. For example, you didn't have as many department stores, you didn't have as many anchors, um, and the Australian-like industry was very uh, inventive in terms of what it did using supermarkets as anchors, using discount department stores as anchors, coming up with food courts, coming up with entertainment-style anchors, um, and doing things in a way which uh, you know, when I got to the US, there were no supermarkets inside shopping malls. Um, they were separate, um, but they were a really important part of driving traffic. Um, you know, so much of the traffic that comes into the shopping malls today comes from your daily needs. In the US that didn't exist. You, know, you, you go from state to state in the US and you've got four department stores in a kind of a cruciform plan and most of those guys are going out of business. Um, and whereas in Australia you had a a very very um, robust traffic drivers um, that was really off the back of this sort of need to come up with viable anchors Um, and that that kind of innovation served us really really well when we actually went overseas so you know when we took on the Westfield London project um, we bought into a company that was actually already building at Westfield London at sort of a over one you know, one million square foot mall um, with one lease signed on one department store out of four um, that didn't have any escalators going between level one and two and, you know, had only multiple lifts. And So there were real issues that needed to be addressed um, and, you know, we had to bring all of our skills to bear. So much of that had grown up in Australia and grown up on other projects like a Bondi Junction or, uh, you know, or or others, you know, in Australia and a lot of that thinking was brought to the UK, as well as a great team of people that were able to be called on to, uh, to do that. So I think that innovations learned in, Austra- in the Australian market, um, the markets were very, very different in the UK. No one had done food um, in terms of the amount of food inside um, a, a mall that we did. Outdoor restaurant streets, luxury villages, great entertainment areas, two-story high shops, shop fronts with Zara and H&M great architecture, great natural light, um, smart car parks with you know smart car park navigation. There are a lot of innovations that really when Westfield London landed on the scene, um, people really stood up and took notice of because we had that Australian period of learning um, and
0: being innovative. And what about the the culture of the organisation? What, what made it so successful? I suppose you, you start an environment of, uh,
1: you know, um, I mean, the founders were really working in the business. Um, That always brings an additional intensity to it. Um, There was a huge, huge passion, um, a real fear of any kind of failure. Um, Let's call it healthy paranoia. You know, an incredible, incredible team of people, um, incredible financial rigor.
0: As I understand it, you spent time with Westfield in Australia, the UK and the US, which you've spoken about, overseeing various projects and becoming, obviously, a significant part of the business's growth. But I want to ask you about some of the challenges. What, what were some of the difficulties and challenges encountered along the journey?
1: I mean, the, the 25 years went pretty fast, but every day um, certainly there are challenges. Um, I think, you know, if you stand back and think about the real challenges in terms of you know, that, that business and, and what it was doing. I suppose you come back to those earlier points about market share and where, how does it grow and it was obviously a very high growth business um, but physically very complex business as well. Um, remember it was completely, or is completely vertically integrated business that's doing you know, development, design, construction, leasing, management, finance, legal, HR, marketing, technology, the lot. And so um, I suppose really, like so many other businesses, but then you think about how do you expand and where do you go? If the market in Australia is, is starting to get full up, um, you go to another country. You've got to learn the, the whole culture of the new country. You've got to resource it with the right people. You've got to communicate with them at different time zones. You know, I'm pretty happy with my life on the east coast of Australia right now. Um, my typical day was, you know, kind of morning lunch and evening on a different uh, video in a different time zone, as was the, the, the entire leadership team. So these are the challenges of um, a global business um, and seeking to expand into new markets and having been at the pointy end of a lot of that. Um, even getting into a market like the UK and operating there. Um, I I think in terms of there are cultural differences, there are legal differences, there are talent differences, all of that. So I think if you think about the challenges of expanding a business like that, you've got to go to new markets, you've got to learn the new markets, you've got to operate there, um, and you've got to have people that, you know, you can really rely on to to sort of deal with it. In terms of the financial challenges, you've got to make sure that, um, you know, you're well financially structured and resolved to do all of that. Um, but I, I'd say probably, you know, the real big challenge is the kind of, how do you resource that type of growth?
0: One question that many people will want to know your answer to is how the global retail sector has changed over the past two or three decades. What, what have been the major changes and, and what do you see as the, the future of retail, if you were to have, have a guess?
1: I think change in retail is nothing new. and. Um, I think over the 60 years that, you know, Frank Lowe was doing it, that Westfield was doing it, change was always a constant. There's no doubt in retail that it's sped up. We've talked about the digital revolution that's really created this hockey stick of change, Um, and maybe talk a little bit about the future there, but the innovation um, that was always going on and is going on, even simply from, you know, a shopping centre in the old days was a box with a lid. You know, what is it today um, in terms of, you know, it's permeable. People don't even want to call it a mall anymore. They called it all sorts of different things. What's inside it? How's it made up? It, you know, it was 60% fashion and, you know, what's that today? It was 5% F&B, but what's that today? So, you know, the, the evolution um, of the product was always constant um, and the change was always constant and I think this kind of healthy paranoia in Westford was always... You know, and the curiosity and, and remaining relevant and, and really being in touch with the customer, being the consumer and your retailer to really stay at the cutting edge of that. Um, so I think change, change has always been there. I think it's sped up dramatically. I think we're kind of all yet to land on what is the future of retail. Technology's playing such a big part in it. Post COVID we saw, well, during COVID we saw this massive pull forward of the impact of technology you know, how we watched our movies at home, how we got our food at home, how we exercised at home, how we worked at home, all of those things. And that pull forward that we saw in companies like Zoom and Peloton and Kogan's and whatever they are, obviously now that's taking a breather. So, you know, where is all of that and what does that mean? I mean, Amazon's had a bit of a breather. Um, So many of those industries have. I mean, um, barring those guys, you know, not being, sort of caught up with some cyber issue or environmental issues around too many white vans that are driving around London and New York and, um, and all of those type of things. I think, you know, the technology's here and it's working and how far will it grow? But, you know, where does bricks and mortar fit in with that? Um, and I think it's probably more about, you know, where does the customer fit in with all of that? So I think, you know, I'm not quite sure how you fund all of this. But I think that the customer has to become the centre of everything and the customer has, uh, there has to be a single view of the customer, you know, Rob, Michael. And what you're buying and where you shop is completely irrelevant. So you know, whether it comes from a mall, whether it comes online, whether it comes on a bike, whether it comes in the metaverse, um, who knows. Uh, but the whole platform of shopping is probably going to migrate in that direction if I had to have a bet.
0: We've explored a lot of topics, so just one or two questions to finish. Reflecting on your career, what would you say are your proudest achievements? I was extremely proud
1: to have my mum come across to London to um, see me get my OBE at Buckingham Palace. My parents were incredibly supportive of of what I did. In fact, my mum made two introductions for me, one to another post-war immigrant, or two post-war immigrants, Harry Seidler and Henry Pollack, which is really how I got my start at Harry Seidler's office and Mervac, Um, so I was incredibly proud to have her um, come along and witness Prince Charles or our future king uh, come and do that. But I think from a professional perspective, the the opening of Westfield London and the opening of Stratford City in 2012 uh, to the world off the back of the Olympics, I don't think you could really go past that.
0: Fantastic opening too. I think Boris Johnson at the time, the Mayor of London, was at the opening of one, and, uh, and Nicole Scherzinger as well performed, if I uh, if I recall correctly. And and just to finish, what's what's left? What does the next five or ten years look like for yourself? Obviously, AFM is going to take up the majority of your, of your time. Do you divide your time to any other interests or, or causes? What 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 are you most passionate about?
1: Yeah, look, I mean, I'm very excited about building up this business. Um, I'm excited about you know, building a team. Uh, I think we've assembled a fantastic team of partners, shareholders, um, executives working in the company, a registry of investors. I think we're really putting those pieces together um, and you know there's a huge focus on that and, 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 and making a success of that. From a, uh, you know, the ability to sort of mentor a next generation coming through that, um, obviously in my own family to be able to do similar um, and make a broader contribution to the community. And hopefully we will find a way to mesh all that together um, from a personal and a professional way through the new business as well.
0: Michael Gutman, OBE, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to sit down with you this morning. Thanks for your time. Thank you.